working. All right, uh, take your Bibles, go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, very familiar verse to start us out with. Tonight we're going to be talking about what is dispensationalism, and uh, uh, am I one? Am I a dispensationalist? So this, uh, quite frankly, can get very, very technical. We're not going to get super technical tonight. I'm probably going to do a two or three week series on this because it's such a major issue. And the way driving in tonight, I always study, if you will, um, the other side of the coin. So there's two main, if you will, theological camps today. One's called the dispensational camp, of which I am a part. We'll explain why. Uh, And the other one is known as covenant theology, basically, which came out of the Reformation. And there are such diversity of uh, opinions on this. There's some very, very strong feelings uh, it gets uh, a little heated at times, but folks, we're going to look at this from a, uh, tonight, not the super scholarly side, but here's the thing. Pastors, Bible teachers, school teachers spend years and years and years going to Bible schools, seminaries, and uh, thank you, of which I've done. And if you go back to pre-Reformation times, the church, if you will, the state church, the particular major denominational church that existed at the time, i.e. the Catholic Church, and uh, various, if you will, offshoots from it, the Episcopal Church church and others. By the way, if you didn't get uh, the handout, uh, raise your hand. Uh, The deacons are coming by right now. They'll be happy to get you a copy. What we see is there's this divergence of opinion about, well, when did dispensationalism start? And there's an individual named John Nelson Darby, who basically is, uh, especially from, if you will, the covenant theologian standpoint, the one who started dispensationalism. Now we're talking the early 1900s or late 1800s. And that has been, if you will, the mantra of the covenant theologians that this is dispensationalism just showed up it's a hundred couple hundred years old at best and it's it's basically a man-made theology well what's taken place over the last specifically the last couple of generations and if you got a pen I'm going to give you a website it's a short web uh, uh, couple of letters there's a website called pre-trib or pretrib.org. So it's P-R-E dash, not underscore, but dash, P-R-E dash T-R-I-B.org. Pretrib.org, of which I've been part of for multiple years. It uh, meets in Dallas once a year with uh, what I would consider some of the best theologians on earth right now. It's run by an individual named Dr. Tommy Ice, his partner that many of you have heard of from the Left Behind series, who actually helped start the organization, Dr. Tim LaHaye, who of course went to be with the Lord. So Dr. Ice is basically taken over. There's another individual uh, who's still on campus at Liberty University, Dr. Ed Heinson, H-I-N-D-S-O-N. These are the two main individuals that currently run this organization. Well, if you go to their website, what you'll find is article after article after book after book after scholarly uh, uh, input going through what has basically been developed over the last, let's say, 50, 60 years that has not been developed in the past. So I'm going to make a couple of blanket statements, then we'll get into the discussion this evening. When... Did dispensationalism start? First of all, what does it mean, right? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? And uh, we have to go through that, and we'll explain it uh, point by point here. But here's the simplicity of it after we get started, and then I'm giving you, the, if you will, the, the big 30,000-foot overview, and then we're going to get down into the weeds a little bit. Dispensationally basically looks at the Bible as being taught from a literal standpoint. The first 300 years of Christian history, if you will, from uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ up until about 300 A.D., I will say uh, 
unequivocally that what you'll hear taught here and preached here is the same thing you would have heard for the first 300 years of Christendom. What happened in 300 AD is an individual named Augustine came on the scene, and all of a sudden, instead of everything being taught from a literal, historical, grammatical, contextual standpoint, Augustine came up with this brilliant theology, and, and I do mean that sarcastically, I mean no harm to these people, but they've completely destroyed a proper interpretation of God's word. What did Augustine do? He then said, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really mean what the Bible says, and we need to look at it from an allegorical standpoint. In other words, this morning we talked about, those of you that were here, which is most of you, uh, we talked about the seven-year tribulation. We talked about the literal 1,000-year millennial kingdom. We talked about the literal second coming of Christ. Augustine, the Reformed theologians, the Covenant theologians, would deny everything that we taught this morning and allegorize that. In other words, there's no literal seven-year tribulation period. We're probably living in the tribulation now. There's others that will say we're living in the millennial kingdom now. Now that on its face ought to, get, ought to raise some eyebrows. The issue is there's this major divergence of opinion, if you will, in the scholarly community, specifically among theologians, and you'll watch the pendulum swing back and forth generation to generation. The pendulum right now is swinging away from what we teach here at Unigro Baptist Church. You say, well, why is that? Because the major universities, and I will name a few of them a little bit later, that have basically been mainstays, if you will, in the Christian community have changed from, if you will, a literal interpretation of the Bible to an allegorical interpretation or spiritualizing the text. That will absolutely destroy biblical interpretation. So I'm making some very strong statements as we start out with, but what we need, and quite frankly, and I wasn't going to go into this, but I'll just take a minute or two. Nine years ago, Valerie and I started a group, uh, a ministry, if you will, called Prophecy Focus Ministries. Our total reason for doing that, kind of patterning, patter, pat, how we get it, making ourselves pattern after, there we go, uh, uh, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, who is one of my mentors, and um, been in many, many of his classes through Liberty Baptist University. I have a passion for people to understand what the Word of God says, rightly divided, if you will. So that brings us to, and we'll, we'll start getting into it, so I'm going to lose some of you. It's like I don't, I don't even have a clue what you're talking about yet, so I suppose we ought to get down to some of the basics. So as we like to say here, and I put this on, this has been one of our mainstays here at Union Grove Baptist for a couple of years, peeling God's prophetic word or God's word one passage at a time. We've got to understand the scriptures. It just absolutely cannot be that God's people, if you will, have a dummy down gospel, have a dummy down theology. And that's what's taking place in our churches across America right now. Instead of us knowing, every single person here, quite frankly, should know what I know. You say, well, you've been in school most of your life. You've got couple of earned doctorates in theology and all that good stuff. How do you expect us to get it? Right here. That's what God has basically burdened me to do. You should know the same thing I do. You should know the same thing that every good theologian knows. It's not like in the dark ages. It's not like when, if you will, the state church said, nope, we're not going to give them the Bible. Nope, we're not going to teach them everything. We have to keep them in submission to the church. Wrong. Uh, we need to only be in submission to one person, and that, of course, is, is the Lord. So we're going to get a, again, and I'm, I'm really happy to see a good group here tonight. And uh, these are the kind of things we need to know together as a group. So the, uh, this has been our series, Know What You Believe and Why. I want you to question things. I don't want you just simply to parrot something because you've heard it on the radio or you heard it on the TV or you've heard it from my mouth or someone else that's, uh, if you will, a, a Bible teacher or theologian. There is a massive divergence of theology out there, and many of you have come and said, well, man, I heard this and I heard that, and, I heard, and it's like, yeah, you hear a whole bunch of stuff, but what's truth? You want to know the truth? I do, and I, and I think you do too. So as we study, 
which is exactly what we're going to do. We're going to look at some of these things. So basically this, and again, dispensational biblical interpretation. So what it just, we're going to go through basically what does this word mean? Why does pastor up here talk about it on occasion? And what's the significance of it? So let me just ask a couple of very basic questions to get this started. Number one, do you sacrifice animals today to cover your sins? Yes or no? Absolutely not. Well, why not? I mean, they did it in the Old Testament. Why aren't we doing it today? Well, of course, we'll, we'll, we know that uh, there's a very basic reason for it with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, uh, the once-for-all sacrifice. We don't do it anymore. Well, wait a minute. Did God, did God work with a certain group of people in a certain way before Christ came, and it is a different in how he works with people today? Absolutely. All right, so that's about as simplistic as we can get. But we want to get a little bit deeper than that. Men, do you go to the temple three times a year as mandated by the law? Now, first of all, this would only apply if you have Jewish background. If you're a Gentile, you, you're basically, unless you were a Jewish proselyte, you couldn't even do this. But the Old Testament demanded that every single man show up in Jerusalem three times a year, three different feasts. Do we do that today? Do we even have a temple today? So it's impossible. Things have changed. Here's another one. And be careful how you answer this one. Do you keep the Sabbath and all the associated commandments of God? Yes or no? Absolutely not. You're here on Sunday. When's the Sabbath? Saturday. Some people are like, well, I go to church on Sunday. It's the Sabbath. That's not the Sabbath. Never has been historically. This is not the Sabbath. Well, why do we meet on the first day of the week, which is Sunday? Why don't we keep the Sabbath? Well, again, are we under the law or under grace? And every single one of you know the difference. And however, when you hear some of the radio Bible teachers, some of the TV teachers, you'll find them constantly mixing law and grace. Something to keep in mind. Uh, have, you, have, you, have you eaten pork uh, in your life? had it for lunch, right? Why? I mean, back in the Old Testament, that was an unclean animal. Absolutely no, and other animals and so forth. Why aren't, why aren't we keeping the dietary laws of the Old Testament? All right, so these are just the very, very simplistic concepts of has God changed the way he works with people? Well, let's move on a little bit. So again, what dispensationalism, it's basically, or being a dispensationalist, is interpreting the Bible with a specific set of rules. So that's literally in the simplistic form. You say, well, here's how I interpret the Bible. Now, here are the four key things. I've gone through them over and over and again in the last two years that I've been here. But these are the four key things to properly interpreting the Bible. Number one, we have to look at its historical background. Who was it written to? Why was it written? And so forth. Then we go and we get into the specific context of every single verse, every single paragraph, every single chapter, every single book. What's the context? Why was it written? Who is it speaking to? All those things are extremely important. Then uh, we look at the grammatical. Again, the Bible is not written in English. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And uh, uh, our English Bibles, by the way, are excellent. And uh, if you compare them, if you don't know the original languages, you can still do a very fine job of understanding the scriptures based on uh, the, the scriptures that have been in, uh, translated and are in our hands. The last item on here is the key difference between Union Grove Baptist Church and uh, what will be called maybe uh, some churches that say, and, and this is really uh, amazing to me, there's a church that was called Baptist Reformed Covenant Church of wherever. Now, that's, that's basically, uh, um, I don't know how to describe that, but it's like, okay, very interesting. We need to understand why these divergences are, and you need to understand this because every time you pick up this book, if you're not applying those four principles, you're going to mess it up. You're like, well, you know, I read the Old Testament sometimes, and I, I just don't get it. I read the New Testament sometimes, and, and it just, who's he talking to? Why is he, what, what's going on? 
and you, we get this confusion that exists. Well, if we use this, and then we're going to use that big fancy word, hermeneutics. Basically, again, all that word means in normal everyday language is Bible interpretation. How do we make sure that what we're reading is what God wants you to hear? That's, and, and I would think every one of us, if God wrote this book, there was a reason for it. And uh, I like to say this, get it right. You see, my whole life is spent, as many of yours are, in we want to get it right. The last thing this pastor, and I know uh, all of our Bible teachers here, the last thing they want to do is teach something that is wrong, inappropriate. We want to get it right. So there's a, a major reason why we spend our time in the Word of God. So here's the key now. The two major groups, again, and we're going to be talking more about this uh, the next time I do a Sunday night. By the way, next Sunday night, Sunday school, uh, Dr. Huffman, and again, uh, many of you know him from the last banquet here. His wife passed away. Um, was a very tough go for her. Dr. Huffman is, uh, is just a wonderful, he's a godly man, he's a counselor, and he's going to be teaching in Sunday school on how do I handle the loss of a loved one. We've had several people here that have been going through it recently. Many of you have gone through this over the past few years. So basically, I, I asked him, he's, he's very, very good at this. He's very uh, uh, expertise in this. It's like, would you come and uh, talk to our folks about how do you handle the loss of a loved one? So uh, I highly encourage you to be here for that. Sunday night, he'll, uh, he'll be preaching, so I'm going to take a seat and listen to him. Uh, but I will be preaching next Sunday morning. So literal is the key. Now, here's the difference. The difference is this. Those that believe uh, or follow the Bible interpretation patterns, as we do here at Union Grove, we do not allegorize or spiritualize the Scripture. Covenant theologians do. That came out again in the 300s when Augustine started this allegorical school, and a lot of the young uh, guys, a lot of the young, well, this is new, this is interesting, and all of a sudden, we got into this major push of allegorizing the scriptures. Now, again, if I wanted to go through very in-depth, which I'm not going to do tonight. Tonight's the basic overview. We need to go literally through church history from the 100 ADs all the way up until the present time. What happened in the trail of blood, if you will, from the martyrs of the first century? What happened to those who attempted to do what we're doing right here? to meet in a church and to uh, openly discuss the scriptures. What happened when uh, uh, the church became a state-run organization and you either followed it or you were killed? What happened when the, uh, uh, the New Testament writers and, and uh, Old Testament translators, when they tried to put the Bible into English, what happened to those individuals that did that? They were martyred. They were burned at the stake. People that uh, uh, did, uh, we talked about it a few weeks ago when we talked about the Anabaptists where uh, the, the church of England, the Catholic church, if you will, the Episcopal churches, if you went against their doctrine of infant baptism and you attempted to re-baptize somebody as we do here with, uh, uh, um, if you will, believer's baptism, you would be killed back in the day. So we go through the historical aspects of what's taken place and where we are today, and it's critical to understand this. John Nelson Darby did not start dispensational theology. I strongly, and, and put it this way, I believe God started dispensational theology, and it lasted for 300 years until it was corrupted, and then we went through a chain of events that basically a church like ours today you couldn't have existed back then because every one of us would have been dead. You had to go underground. So there's a whole lot of church history that enters into this. Well, let's, uh, uh, you got some of the basics now. Here is, and then we'll get into the first verse in just a moment. The Greek word, which is translated dispensation, and the word is in your Bible. We'll look at it in a moment, is uh, oak. Oikonomia. Now you're like, well, that's Greek to me. Who cares? Well, <laughs> it's Greek to me, and I do care. And uh, the, the word is uh, literally translated, and here's some of the ways it's used as an administration, as a plan, 
Now, as an economy, now economy, we're not talking about dollars and cents here. We're talking about, if you will, uh, 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 an administration of how God is dealing with people to manage, to regulate. So basically, this is the most simplistic definition I can give of dispensationalism, which is this last line. God working in a specific way with a specific group of people during a specific time. Now, we already talked about the difference between the Old Testament law and the New Testament grace. By the way, covenant theologians have three different ways they they look at covenant theology, and this is it. They have what is known as the covenant of redemption. Now, I certainly agree with that first part. God, since day one, after man and woman, i.e. Adam and Eve, sin, God has always provided a way for mankind to be right with God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first gospel is given, the proto-euangelion. What does it tell us? That Jesus Christ would come, that uh, basically his head would, or uh, his heel would be crushed when he crushes the head of Satan. That's the first mention, if you will, of the gospel, way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, written in 1445 B.C. The whole entire Bible from Genesis 3 on is indeed God's plan of redemption. Now, what you'll hear from our, our covenant theologian friends is this, that if we could put the colored ball down, that would probably be helpful. Thank you. <laughs> Stick it down. You can play with it. Just keep it a little. Thanks. I'm seeing it in my glasses, and it's like, boo, waking me up. Uh, anyway, it's all good, folks. Uh, I appreciate the young folks being here, and sometimes they have to have a little something to keep them busy, and that's, that's all fine. All right, so uh, when we're looking at uh, the other two covenants, they call it the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Now, the covenant of grace would be, if you will, somewhat familiar with what we know as the covenant or of grace, but the covenant of works, the two start back in Genesis, and they, they simultaneously work them all the way through the entire Bible. Again, 30,000-foot overview. We'll get down to the weeds a little bit. All right, but let's look at that definition again because this is the crux of where we're going. God working in very specific ways with a very specific group of people during a specific time period, and we'll point that out as we go through. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 and very, very important operative verse for us. Now, whether you look at the, the, when we'll look at the New King James Version and the King James Version, which is what most of you have in your hands tonight, and here's what uh, the New King James says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly what? Rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, what in the world does he mean by that? Rightly dividing the truth. Well, as we're going to point out, God deals with specific people in specific ways at specific time periods. And we'll actually look at multiple conditions uh, that an individual, who many of you, especially if you've been around in Christendom a while, a guy named uh, C.I. Schofield is one that came out, if you will, with the seven dispensations. Now, I'll tell you up front, I like most of what he's done, but we're going to add a few things to of uh, what Dr. Schofield did back in the day. But you have to understand how God works in various ways in order to understand how to interpret Scripture. In the King James Version, uh, this was my dad's favorite verse. And my dad was a big-time uh, student of the Bible, big-time uh, theologian, if you will, on these issues. And uh, the King James Version, I kind of like this word better. Both are appropriate, both are proper translation. But this word says what? Study. Now, every young person in here right now, <laughs> every high school student, every person that might be in college right now, when you see that word study, what does it make you feel like? Uh, right? Uh, many of you feel that way. Now, I love to study. Uh, I better, if I'm going to be in uh, a pastor, you got you to study, study, study. It's, it's 90, well, about 80% of my life, 70% of my life is studying the Word of God which is a wonderful thing, but it's a command of God for all of us, not just Pastor Rich. Study! Why? To show yourself or to show, show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, same as the New King James Version, rightly dividing what? The word of truth. What's the word of truth? 
That's the Bible, all right? So when we're talking about study, when we're talking about being diligent, it means what? To give one's best, to make every effort to get this right. The Bible makes it very clear. And by the way, Josh Steele did a wonderful job this morning talking about uh, those in Christian leadership, those that are teachers and so forth, and uh, was excellent. And one of the things, and I don't know if he brought this point out or not, I came in a few minutes after he got started, but that God holds the teacher, if you will, with a high accountability. It's like what I teach up here, God holds me accountable for. So it's like, do I want to get it right? I, I don't want to be in a bad stead with, the, with my master, if you will, with the Lord. So we want to take our time. We want to be diligent. We want to be a, a, a good students of the word of God. Not just me, but every single person here who names the name of Christ, we should be good students of his word. So he says, study what? Uh, uh, why should we study? What should we make every best effort to do? To do what? to rightly divide, to rightly understand the word of truth, which, of course, is the scripture, which I hope you're holding in your hand, uh, whether it's in electronic form or uh, a hard copy, if you will. All right, let's go to one of, the word, one of the times when the word dispensation is used. When I talk about the church age, I always quote these verses, or at least give the references to them. There's a time in the Old Testament when everything was under law, the sacrificial law, the dietary laws, all these different things that had to take place in the Old Testament. Then a major event took place, which we're all familiar with, the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Christ. Something major changed after that. And Ephesians chapter 3 tells us about the change that, quite frankly, and, and we'll go through this because the verbiage here is extremely important. And the Bible says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the what? The oikonomia, the dispensation of the what? You can talk, it's fine. Of the what? The grace of God. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Everybody's always been saved by grace. Abraham was saved by faith. Uh, but see, things have changed. Things have progressed. Old Testament looked forward to the cross. New Testament is looking, if you will, back at what Christ did. And massive things have changed in how God deals with people today. So he says, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation, the economy, if you will, of the grace of God, which is given to me for you. How that by? Wait a minute. Paul's talking here. What's the next word? How that by what? Revelation. What does the word revelation mean? An unveiling, a disclosure, a revealing of something hidden in time past. Paul saying, God revealed to me things that were not made known in the past. You say, can you prove that? Well, let's keep reading it. How that by revelation he made known to me the what? Mystery. Mysterion. That is the literal Greek word there. The word mystery here is talking about, again, something that God kept secret. It was a former mystery. Well, what was the mystery? And Paul said, I've already briefly written about this, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in what? Other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Now, folks, that's black and white English. What was revealed to Paul that had not been revealed in the Old Testament? Well, he says this, verse 6, that the what? Gentiles. All right, now let's not talk in spiritual terms. Let's talk in literal ethnic background right now. I have zero Jewish blood in me. As far as I know, I've never had my DNA tested, but uh, of course we could go and play the game of, well, everybody's from Adam and all. We're not going to play that. What we're going to look at is, are you really a descendant? Are you really a Jewish background, or are you a Gentile? Well, folks, as far as I know, I am a Gentile. In other words, I'm a non-Jew. My wife has one one-hundredth 
of uh, a bloodline that's Jewish. And I've told you about that before, so you get this teeny little bit of it. But wait a second now. We go back to the first century when this was written. Was there a lot of intermarriage going on between Jews and Gentiles? That's a, yeah, it's a loaded question. It's, it's, it's kind of, you can be right or wrong on that one. There were those that were the pure, absolutely pure Jewish people that absolutely refused to intermarry with Gentiles. Then there were the Gentiles who uh, uh, basically would not even think of marrying a Jew. But then there was a group called, uh, a certain group was known as the who, starts with an S. Samaritans who intermarried Jew and Gentile. By the way, uh, we're going to go next, well, in two weeks or so, we're going to look in Acts. Here's, here's, a, here's a homework assignment for you. I want you to go in the book of Acts, read the first nine chapters. And I want you to tell me about when the first Gentile got saved. And I want you to go through and look at every single word. Who is God talking to? Who is he addressing? And then when finally does the gospel actually get to those of us who are non-Jewish or non-proselytes? You say, well, what's a proselyte? A proselyte is a Gentile who basically followed the Jewish law. So you say, well, boy, that's getting, it's getting depthy again. You need to read the first nine chapters. I'll go through it in depth. I got a beautiful chart on that one. And you'll be shocked and amazed by some of the things that you'll see there because you've been taught in many churches, if you will, things that don't match up with the book of Acts. All right, so what is he saying here? Here is the mystery. Here is that which has been kept secret from times past. What is it? Verse 6, that the Gentiles, okay, how many of you are non-Jewish Gentiles here today? All right, you've got a Gentile background. That's us. Now, by the way, we all just made Jimmy DeYoung flip over in his grave. You know why? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32 says this, Give no offense to the Jews, nor to the Greeks or Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Dr. DeYoung was very, very strong in this. Uh, uh, and I, I, When Jimmy DeYoung Jr. was here, he talked on this. There's three strands, if you will, of the human family, three people groups, unsaved Jews, unsaved Gentiles, and Christians who are made up of, if you will, Jews and Gentiles who came to Christ. Jimmy's position was, and I don't know if I totally, I can't say I can't totally agree with him, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, uh, I did, uh, when you trusted Christ, basically, he says, well, your, your Jewishness and your Gentileness, if you will, went away, and now you're a Christian by definition. All right, yeah, we'll argue with that one maybe a little bit. But the fact is, our background here, we're either Jews, Gentiles, and if you've trusted Christ, definitely you are part of the church of God as well. Now, what is the big change here? Up until the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, was, the, was God centering on the Gentile world? Yes or no? Very simple. When, when uh, uh, individuals came up to Jesus one time, and he said, I am not sent, but to the whom? The lost sheep of Israel. He looked at, and he even called the Gentiles what? A particular animal that we all love today, but that wasn't so popular back then. How do you address Gentiles as what? Dogs. I got somebody here who always calls me dog. But it's in, but it's in love, and I get it. But uh, back in the day, that wouldn't be, that, yeah, John, okay, he's admitting to it. But, uh, uh, <laughs> But back in the day, I mean, that would have been like, oh man, seriously, you call me a dog? Uh, now it's now it's you know it's it's a uh, it it's fun. I mean, I don't get offended by it. It's it's cool. You call me dog. You call me kitty. I don't care what you call me. Just don't call me late for dinner, and we're good. All right, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. The massive change that's taking place after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the gospel, if you will, is no longer, the good news is no longer specific to the Jewish people. By the way, how did you come to, how did you come to God back in the Old Testament if you were a Gentile? You converted to, if you will, Judaism. You became a proselyte. We'll, look, we'll show you that, and again, in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about uh, what it took for a Gentile to become a Jewish proselyte. It's all over the place, and so many people miss that, and uh, 
By the way, it's through poor teaching that many of us have been through. All right, so on your charts that I gave you tonight, I gave you some basic things, and we're just going to, again, touch the surface. I'm going to do something I've never done before, and I may not do it tonight, but we're going to try and get you out in about 12 minutes. Yeah, right. Good luck. So, <laughs> all right, what we're looking at here is a chart by C.I. Schofield, uh, and this was basically the seven dispensations that Schofield came up with. Now, some of you here tonight, maybe, uh, how many of you own a Schofield reference Bible? Whether you use it or not, how many of you got one? All right, I got several of them, and there are several people here with them. Schofield was the uh, major, uh, excuse me, study Bible that first came out. And part of that, he had a little booklet that came out talking about the seven dispensations. Well, we're going to go through all seven of those, and you can't see that up here, so uh, we're actually going to go through this line by line uh, with this. But that's the basic chart which you have in your hands. All right, dispensation number one, innocence, starting at Genesis 1.28. What do we have? We have man and woman created. Were they committed, were they born in, or were they created, not born, were they created in sin, yes or no? No, they were created what? Perfect in God's eyes. Then what takes place? Well, everything was perfect. Man, Adam and Eve would have lived forever, never would have died. They were absolutely perfect. And then what happens? Satan rebels against God. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Lucifer rebels. He comes down, he infiltrates, if you will, the minds of Adam and Eve. They both sin against God. They eat the forbidden fruit. And what happens? The fall of man. First two chapters, everything is bliss. Everything is wonderful. An eternity without sin was possible until Satan came, tempted Adam and Eve, and now all of a sudden, instead of man living forever, the curse came upon man. The next dispensational piece, if you were, the next way that God is going to deal with human beings. So at the fall of man, conscience then is what the word is used, enters into it. So man is basically, uh, uh, and woman, I'm using man as, a, as a, a pluralistic term for men and woman at this point. So before uh, they ate the forbidden fruit, everything was perfect. Now sin is entered into the world, and now death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for all of sin. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. So now we have conscience that is in place. Every human being has a conscience. You say, well, man, you know, I try to witness to some folks, and uh, it just seems like they won't ever come to Jesus. Well, folks, here's what can happen. Every single person, according to Romans 1, knows that God exists. What happens when their conscience is seared? And all of a sudden, uh, uh, they're trying to get the gospel to them becomes, it seems, an impossible task. By the way, don't ever give up. Uh, we don't know if their conscience is seared to the point of never trusting Christ. Uh, but always always be willing to witness. But that's the, uh, according to Schofield, the second uh, dispensation goes from, if you will, the fall of man or when conscience was coming in until they were expelled from uh, the Garden of Eden. Well, next we have uh, what's the uh, uh, major judgment after every single one of these dispensations, which Schofield basically put into place, there are some type of judgment. All right, so the first one is the fall of man. Of course, when man was condemned, uh, if you will, because of his sin, he would die. And if he didn't come, if you will, to a saving faith in the Lord, he would spend an eternity in hell, unfortunately. So dispensation number two, we go from conscience to the flood. Man was so corrupt upon the earth, violence was everywhere, that God said, I will destroy mankind. Few people were saved, knowing his wife and his three sons and daughters, and uh, uh, that came out of that. Well, from the flood, all of a sudden, then the next dispensation we call human government, Genesis chapter 9. Basically, we've talked about this in the past, one of the three institutions that God created, uh, number one being the family, number two being human government, number three, which would happen way uh, several thousand years later, was the founding of the church. But human government came into being. God says, you shed man's blood. By man's blood, your blood will be what? Shed. In other words, capital punishment basically was to protect God's people way back in Genesis chapter 9. But unfortunately, human beings decided instead of following God, they decided to follow their own ways, their own nature. And instead of following God, they decided to go to 
Babel, Genesis chapter 10, and they built a huge structure uh, of basically bringing all people together. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Did he say to stay in the same city? No, he said, get across the whole earth. Multiply, spread out among the earth, and they refused to do it. So they start building the Tower of Babel, and God says, okay, you think you're smart? I'm smarter. He said, I'm going to do something. He says, you see all them people down there? He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give them all a different language, and they're going to start running around trying to see who they can communicate with, and that's exactly what happened. Now we have all the different folks that are scattered throughout the earth because at Babel, God confused the language and forced the people to scatter. Dispensation number four, we now have the call of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant. We talk about it often. God, uh, out of Abraham, would his son, we go through this, so play with me, please. Abraham had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So we have the patriarchs of the Jewish people forming in Genesis chapter 12. Now, did the Jewish people, my dear Jewish friends, did they follow God as he instructed them to? No. So God allowed them to be taken down to Egypt, basically during a famine time. The Jewish people rebelled against God. They uh, bitter, complaining, nothing was good enough. And God finally, if you will, kept them in bondage in Egypt until uh, the deliverer came, Moses, and God delivered the people from Egypt. Dispensation 5, when Moses took the Jewish people out of Egypt and started heading towards the promised land, how many years did they spend wandering in the wilderness? 40 years. Folks, any one of us, even with a cane, could have done a whole lot faster trip than what it took the Jewish people to get to the promised land. By the way, how many people that left Egypt, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people on the way to the promised land, how many of them actually made it to the promised land? Three, four, two. The only two I'm aware of are Joshua and Caleb. <laughs> Say what? All right, yeah, Moses basically, where'd he end up? Yeah, he went up to the top of Mount Nebo, and God says, because you struck the rock and you did, you disobeyed me when I told you to get water, and uh, you disobeyed God, and God said, I'm not going to let you go in. You say, a silly little thing like striking a rock, God said, you're not going to the promised land? God, yeah, don't mess around. When he gives a commandment, he means it. So, uh, yeah, poor old Moses had to go up to the top of Mount Nebo, and uh, that's where he died. He was able to look down but, uh, into the promised land. And by the way, I've been at... Uh, you ever hear of a place called Qumran? The Dead Sea Scrolls were found there. If you stand in Qumran and you look up, you can see there's, a, there's like a, 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 a tower, if you will, from, a, of course, a, a denominational church up there. And if you look just right and the sun's just right, you can see the top of it. So you can see actually Mount Nebel, uh, the top of it from Qumran, which is at the base of Jerusalem. Just uh, that was free. Anyway, so... The dispensational law. So the, the Jewish people are on the way to the promised land. They stop at a place called Mount Sinai. What did God give them there? The law. 613 commandments, 365 negative, 248 positive commandments that God gave to them. You'll find them all in the Old Testament books. And uh, Moses, of course, wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, and that's where the law is. Now, here comes the major difference, which brings in the church age in which we live today. So the Mosaic Law basically took place from about 1445, 1440 B.C., up until someone comes down from heaven, goes to that cross to pay for our sins, whose name was Jesus. And at that time, God said, okay, the dispensation of law comes to an end. We looked at the verse in Ephesians that basically uh, we're not under a Jewish system. We're not under a Gentile system. We are under, if you will, the grace of God, which says every single person, Jew, Gentile, or, or whatever, and there are, no, <laughs> there are no whatevers, Jew and Gentile comes to Jesus by what? By faith alone in Christ. There's no proselytes. There's no converting to Judaism. There's no following the Old Testament law to try and be right with God in the Old Testament times before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. There's no more sacrificial system at this point where your sins would be covered until Christ came. Everything 
changed when Jesus came. So what happened? The law basically was done away with. It was fulfilled, if you will, in Jesus Christ. So the sixth dispensation then, which we, according to Schofield, would currently be under, is the dispensation of grace. Everything revolves around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus until what event? The rapture, all right? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 54. The final dispensation, and here's where I think Schofield might have added a little bit more, which we'll look at here is he calls it the reign of Christ, which includes the seven-year tribulation, the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment, and all the way through eternity future. Now, I just told you four different things that, uh, that basically he lumps into this one, if you will, dispensation. So uh, here's, and, and that's why I make, this is my comment, Schofield's seventh dispensation is a minimalist view of the end times. Now, he was, again, he was one of the first, if you will, that really came out with these concepts, tried to show the different ways that God worked with different people at different times. I applaud him for that. It was good work. But uh, I think we can uh, add a little bit more. So here's where I go. Dispensation number seven, after the rapture of the church, would be the seven-year tribulation. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, talks about the seven-year covenant that the Antichrist will confirm with the Jewish people. In the midst of that seven-year period, Daniel 9, 27, he'll break that covenant. The Jewish people will then endure the greatest persecution they have ever faced. Where do you find that? Daniel 7, or Daniel 9, verse 27, Matthew chapter 24, the entire chapter talks about the horrific persecution that the Jewish people will face and others during the seven-year dispensation. What happens after that? Well, after Uh, the seven-year tribulation, we have the second advent of Christ. Why is there a seven-year horrible time of tribulation? Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, all the way through uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. All those chapters talking about God purging this earth of sin. Why? Because the King of kings and the Lord of lords is coming starting at Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through verse 21. So we have Jesus coming back, his second advent. Well, many different things will happen during that thousand-year period, but that is a dispensation, if you will, a specific time period when for 1,000 years God will deal with people in a very specific way. What ends, if you will, uh, uh, that dispensation? Well, after uh, which starts, if you will, uh, with the second advent. And then what happens? We have the white throne judgment as the next major event, Revelation chapter 20, and uh, after verse 10, verse 11 through the end of the chapter. What's the great white throne judgment? That's it, folks. That's the end. There are no more human beings. It all ends there. The new heavens, or actually the basic uh, massive thing called global warming is going to happen at this point. You say, what do you mean by that? What I mean is this, Second uh, Peter tells us that the current heavens, the current earth, what's going to happen to them? They will be what? Burned with fire. You say, is there a true global warming coming? In 1,007 years minimum, there will be a massive global warming that will literally take the heavens and the earth out. Revelation chapter 21 tells us what? There will be a new heaven, a new earth, and a new, come on, What's, what's going to happen? We're going to get a new what? Yeah, we got that. Jerusalem. New heavens, new earth, and a new Jerusalem. We're going to be spending a lot of time there, folks. Got eternity to, to check it out. It's going to be fun. I love going to Jerusalem now. I can't wait to see what the new Jerusalem is like. I love the old Jerusalem. I can't, I can't imagine what it's going to be like. But uh, we have, uh, if you will, uh, that eighth thing where uh, from Christ's second advent, the millennial kingdom uh, was set up, and at the end, what do we have? The great white throne judgment. And then finally, we have the eternal new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. So why you say, what, what does this do? Why are we looking at this? Because basically, these are the ways God has worked at very specific times with very specific groups of people in very specific ways. So I'm going to go through very quickly the chart, and uh, we'll call on a night and come back in two weeks, and uh, we'll pick this up and get a little bit more depthy. All right, so we have creation, which took place at approximately 4,000 B.C. 
Now, if you're new to Union Grove Baptist Church, you say, well, wait a minute. What about, uh, what about evolution? What about theistic evolution? What about the Big Bang Theory? How can you possibly say that God created the heavens and the earth and all that in them is in 4,000 B.C.? Well, because Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 tells us that. Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 11 tells us that. You say, how do you know that? Genesis chapter 5, go home tonight. You want a little homework? Go to Genesis chapter 5, then go to Genesis chapter 11. The genealogies are listed and the dates of the years of the individuals and when they had their sons is all listed. When you list them all out in, in a nice order, which I've done and many, many others have done it, you come out to approximately 4,000 B.C. when Adam was created. It's there in black and white. It's not hard to figure out. Well, you say, well, why do you say approximately 4,000 B.C.? The month and the days are not given. Only the years are given. So you can't prove the exact date, the exact month when creation happened, but we can certainly get pretty close. Uh, so it's approximately 4,000 B.C. when uh, uh, Adam and Eve were created. In Exodus chapter 20, not Genesis 20, but Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, makes it very clear that everything in this universe was created by God in six literal days. Exodus 20, 11. All right. After uh, creation, we have the Mosaic Covenant coming in about 1445 when the law was given. The cross comes, then we're living in what's known as the current church age. For the last 2,000 years, we've been under the church age. By the way, check out the references. Colossians 1, 24, 29. Ephesians 3, we read Ephesians 3, 1 to 6 a few minutes ago. Uh, just skip verse 7. After the rapture of the church, when we're taken out of here, a seven-year tribulation period. Broken up into what? Two major sections. First section is... Peace with Israel, Daniel 9.27. The last half will be the worst holocaust that's ever been on this earth. By the way, the covenant theologians deny everything I just told you. No, that's not true. Uh, that's not what God meant. Well, what did he mean? Well, you know, I don't know, but, uh, and, and it's really that bad. Um, all right, I shouldn't go here, but I'm going to. Southern Seminary in Kentucky covenant. Dr. Al Moore. You say, do you like Dr. Moore? I'm happy he's a Christian. I'm thrilled that he trusted Christ as a Savior. I have one of my best friends, Dr. John Fally, or John Fally, he'll have his doctorate shortly, his PhD, who you see with me on Prophecy Focus if you look at VCY. We're on there every single week. We just finished our 103rd program this week. He, uh, he goes to that school, and they know he isn't a covenant guy. So it makes for some very interesting classes, and it makes for a very interesting Ph.D. process. You say, so you're talking about firsthand knowledge? I am. Two of your favorite authors, John Piper, Reformed Theologian. You say, well, some of John's stuff is some of the best stuff I've ever heard about the sovereignty of God and the grace of God, and oh, it's so good. One of the most prolific authors of our time, Covenant Theology, allegorizes every single thing in regards to future times. You say, you want to diss anyone else? Yes, one more. Another individual who is one of the most prolific authors of our time has been a teacher, a professor at Trinity in Deerfield, has written massive amount of books that many people will quote, Dr. D.A. Carson, Reformed theologian, will deny everything we just went through here. You say, well, why are you mentioning them? Because many of you read their books. Many of you are, uh, if you will, their theology is going to come through in some of the things they wrote that you read. People in this room have said, oh, man, I read John Piper, I read D.A. Carson, what a great book. I'm like, well, maybe one of them is, but uh, some of them are very suspect. So you say, why, why, why are you naming some of these people? Because, folks, here's the, here's the bottom line. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us to what? Study to show yourselves approved unto God, workmen and workwomen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
After the seven-year tribulation period, Jesus Christ comes back at his second advent to set up the 1,000-year millennial kingdom denied by the Reformed theologians. Many of them were in the millennium right now. It, God didn't mean a thousand years. Six times in seven verses, Genesis or, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 through 7. Six times in seven verses, God said 1,000 years. I said I'd stop. I knew I wouldn't. But we're almost done, for real. And I always make this little silly statement. If my mom told me to do something once, I better do it. If she told me twice, I was in big trouble. If she told me three times, Dad was going to have a little chat with me when he got home from work. If Mommy had to tell me something seven times, I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> so when God says six times in seven verses, I mean a thousand years, God's not kidding. One thousand year millennial kingdom, and then finally, of course, we'll go into eternity future. Now, we're going to save this one for next time. So uh, uh, it's a lot there, and we no way are we going to be able to touch it tonight. What's, what's the bottom line, folks? For some of you, this was like, whoo, I mean, your head just exploded, right? But here's the problem. This stuff is going on every single day of Christendom. The theological debates are heavy, heavy, heavy in the seminaries and the colleges and the Christian universities that are training your children. What is truth? Is it a literal interpretation of the Bible, or do we make it up as we go along? And you say, well, that's, that's kind of condescending. Folks, when it comes to Scripture, we need to get it right. Therefore, we study. Therefore, we take time. Therefore, we analyze. And I'll, and I'll end with this. You say, oh, Brother Rich, what if I don't agree with you? Fine. Absolutely fine. You say, you mean you're okay if I hold a different view? Well, sort of. <laughs> Am I going to be mad at you? Absolutely not. Am I going to say, no. Listen, folks, I've been doing this for 40-plus years. I spent, I just got my, I finished my last degree in 2015. I think it was 15, 16, somewhere in there. I've been studying all my life. I've read the covenant theologians. I've read the dispensational theologians. I've read the theologians that aren't theologians. And now, you say, after all that study and all that time, you seem to have a pretty firm idea of what you believe. I do. And folks, we all need to know what we believe and why. Because, you see these young people in here tonight? You see the teenagers here tonight? You see the young people here in their 20s tonight? If they don't know what's in this book, the second they can get out of here and not be under mommy and daddy's authority, they're gone. That's what's happening all over the country because people refuse to teach the book as it is written. Father, thank you for our time tonight. Lord, we've made some very strong statements, some dogmatic statements, and yet, Father, as you've instructed us to do, we always want to speak the truth in love. So, Father, even those that we pointed out tonight that may disagree with us, I still love them as brothers. I still love that they love you. But, Father, we need to be careful with our theology. We need to be careful what we teach others. We need to make sure that what we do brings honor and glory to you. Finally, if you're here tonight, if you, do you know for sure, 100% sure, if you died, you go to heaven, that's the most important thing. All these theological issues are important but it's not what eternity is based upon, covenant or dispensational theology. What it's based upon is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Tonight we talked mainly to Christians that are trying to determine the best way to study the Scriptures, and that is important. But if you died right now without Christ, none of this would matter whatsoever. The gospel is simple, that Jesus Christ came down from heaven, died on the cross for our sins because we're all sinners. We all come short of the glory of God, but Jesus loves you. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you said, listen, I understand I'm a sinner. I understand I don't deserve to go to heaven, but I believe in Jesus Christ that he did come down from heaven. God himself, taking on human form, came down from heaven, lived some 33 on this, on this earth, then he went to a cross, was crucified, buried, and risen again from the dead. 
and you made it so simple that every single person that will place their faith and trust in what you've done for them in offering that free gift of salvation that can't be earned, they can go to heaven. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. If you've never trusted Jesus, would you right now exercise the faith, receive that free gift, so that you too may go to heaven when you die. Father, seal any decisions being made. Help us to be good students of the word and all God's people said,